shepherd you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you of this promise of your Holy Spirit in our lives, Lord, not only uh, when we share in front of leaders and kings and magistrates, but Lord, thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit for each and every day, Lord, to convict us and to comfort us, Lord, to encourage us, God, and to remind us just how much we need you. Lord, we pray for the family, those going through the difficult seasons in life, Lord. We continue to pray for Lewis and his family, the passing of his mom, Lord. Uh, we pray for my mom and dad, and Lord, many who are going through cancer and difficulties, Lord, and loss of loved ones, the many within our flock who are now caretaking for their elderly parents and loved ones. Lord, we ask that you'd be with them and minister to them today. And Lord, we thank you that we get to rejoice with those who rejoice, Lord, for the birthdays and weddings and newborns and adoptions. Lord, we thank you that we get to rejoice in this life as well. And Holy Spirit, we just ask that you'd fill us afresh and anew, that as your word goes out, Lord, it would find good soil. So we love you, Lord. We ask that you'd speak to us this morning and that we'd have ears to hear and absorb and obey. We love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Last time we were together in verses 1 through 15, we see how Jesus sent out his 12 disciples to go out as a part of the labor force to reap this great harvest. And this harvest is not only great, but it is ready to be harvested. It is to the point that like that avocado, it's about to go bad. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. In verses 1 through 15, we saw how the main mission at this point for the disciples was to seek out those who were the lost sheep of the household of Israel. From verse 16 through the rest of the chapter, we're going to see how Jesus opens up the field of view, and now the mission field is much more applicable to us because it has to do with even the Gentiles being saved and hearing the message of Christ. We are now talking about our mission along with the mission of these 12 disciples. There's not too much comfort, too much comfort found in verses 16 through 42, but as always in Scripture, there's a whole lot of truth found in verses 16 through 42. A great question to ask yourself as we read and study through this is, are you kingdom-minded or are you earthly-minded? Is your whole life just about the comforts of today and living for this world, or is your whole life about your father's business and living for the King of kings and Lord of lords? The second great question to ask yourself is, do you respect people's opinions of you or do you respect God's view of you? Which is the thing that you fear more? So verse 16, he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I'm sure many of you have children like I do that love animals and love all things animals. How many natural defenses do sheep have against a wolf? None, right? There's no video on YouTube, pack of sheep attacking wolf. It, is, it doesn't exist. And here Jesus is being honest with his disciples. He's being honest with us to give us the reality of the field and the mission field that we're going after. Charles Spurgeon, he says, Here you see sheep sent forth among the wolves as if they were the attacking party. And were bent upon putting down their terrible enemies. It is a novel sight, such as nature can never show. But grace is full of marvels. 
We can be mindful of what we looked at last week, how God loves to use the weak and foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And just as foolish as it would be to see a pack of sheep attacking a wolf, this is what God calls us to do. Not to attack wolves, but to share the gospel and preach the word at the right season with wisdom even to the wolf that God would transform them and make them a new creation. Jesus is warning the disciples ahead of time of the climate of the world they were heading into. He is then telling them the mindset and the awareness that they need to have in navigating such a difficult climate. They needed to be wise as serpents and yet as gentle and harmless as a dove. We need to be wise enough to foresee trouble and run from it, yet not having the venom that many serpents have. Instead of venom, our temperament needs to be gentle and lowly like our master. In Proverbs 27, 12, it says, A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Romans 16, 19 puts it this way, I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Family, are you wise in what is good? How much scripture do you know? How much doctrine do you know? Are you wise in the good things of this word? Or are you just wise concerning evil things? It's always a danger when there's a believer that's completely caught up with all the Hollywood gossip. When there's a believer that knows every album and every TV show and knows everything about all of the garbage in the world today, you are not being obedient to Romans 16, 19. When you know every sin and every disgusting term and all the grossness of the world today, you are not being wise to what is good and simple or harmless concerning the evil of the world today. Philippians 2.15 tells us to be blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We need to be blameless and harmless, children of God without fault. David Brown puts it this way. He says, wisdom of the serpent would save them from the unnecessary exposure to danger. The harmlessness of the dove from the sinful expedience to escape it. There was a manly combination of unflinching zeal and yet calm discretion before which nothing was able to stand. Men, this is what we need today. More men that have an unflinching zeal when it comes to the things of of the Lord and yet a calm discretion. That that warrior in the garden is what we need more and more. Men that's hearts belong to the Lord so that they are able to love deeply and yet they have an unflinching zeal for the things of Christ. 17 and 18, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. These last words and to the Gentiles reveal to us that Jesus is opening the lens of the mission here in the second half of Matthew 10, revealing to us that it's not just the Jew, but also the Greek and Gentile that he wants to see saved. Even though they would be wise and harmless, inevitably, people would deliver them up to be scourged, to go up before councils, and to give testimony among religious leaders and political leaders. And perhaps the disciples thought Jesus was being a little dramatic here. Master, what do you mean being delivered up to councils and being scourged and brought before governors and kings? All we're doing is sharing the gospel and healing the sick. We're offering free health care. They're going to get mad at us? 
Jesus multiplied food. He fed 5,000 people at one time, fed another 4,000 people at another time. Master, what are you talking about? You've given us power to heal people. You've given us power to free men and women and children from the bondage of, the, of demonic power. Why would we be bought, brought up for questioning? Why would we be scourged? We can turn to Matthew chapter 5. And again, it is quite mind-blowing to think of kingdom-bound men and women, what our character should look like, and yet knowing the world will hate us. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to just run through verses 3 through 12 here. But notice the characteristics of kingdom-bound sons and daughters. We are to be poor in spirit, verse 3. We are to be those who mourn over our own sin. We are to be meek, a person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. We are to be merciful and pure in heart. We are to be the peacemakers of the world today. But then he says in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, even though we are to act and be like Christ, we have to be ready to be hated just as Christ was hated. We'll look at that more later. Back to Matthew chapter 10. We see that Jesus knew that these disciples were going to be brought before governors and kings and synagogues and councils. And yet, do you remember the 12 men that he picked? A bunch of rural country bumpkins. And he said, hey, you guys are going to go up before kings. It's not like Jesus says, whoa, 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 we need another team here. We need an A team and a B team. These guys, they can do the work, but these guys, they go up before the kings and queens. No, Jesus was willing to take a chance on these fishermen, these rural country boys. He was willing to take a chance on them because he trusted in their weakness to press into the Holy Spirit. You see, you don't emphasize your weakness and your lack emphasize the great power and promises that Jesus has for us and that the Holy Spirit has for us to meet us in our time of need. Jesus is not just talking about the mission of in this time period, but even today there are many believers, many Calvary Chapel pastors that in 2020 and 2021 were brought before rulers and leaders and council members and mayors and judges because they feared God more than the mandates of man and government. Verse 19 and 20, he says, But when they deliver you up, do not worry. Has this not been a common theme throughout the book of Matthew so far? Do not worry. Do not fear. Do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Jesus has already gone through Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Do not worry about your life. Now he says, when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. Here Jesus is revealing to us that the most important thing when you get arrested isn't how to break out of jail isn't planning the jailbreak, the most important thing when they deliver you up is to not worry and be ready for a testimony and ready to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Would that be your mindset if you would get imprisoned for your love for Jesus Christ? I don't know if that'd be my mindset. I'll be honest here. Like, Lord, how do I get out of here as quickly as possible? And sadly, perhaps we have gotten so entrenched our roots have grown so deep into this world and the comforts of this world that we're not as good as we should be for our father 
We're not as ready to be used by him because we are seeking comfort so desperately. We can think of Paul who would have been released from Roman chains but instead kept appealing to Caesar over and over and over again. Just when one of the judges was going to say, innocent, let him be free, Paul would say, I appeal to Caesar. In fact, in Acts 26, 32, it says, Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Paul's main goal was not prison break. Paul's main goal was not comfort. Paul's main goal was to do right by his master and proclaim the gospel to Caesar himself. What is our goal as we walk about our day? Is it preaching the gospel or is it our own comfort? Here Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will give us the words to speak in that hour. And this is a promise God has been giving for thousands of years. And yet, if we're honest, it's one of the main reasons why we don't share the gospel. Is it not? We say, what happens if they ask a question that I don't know the answer to? Anybody ever said that before? Oh, I, I don't know what to say. I've been saved for a month. I've been saved for a year. I've been saved for 10 years. I don't know what to say. You hear those excuses all the time. But here, Jesus is promising when we're given the opportunity to give a testimony for him, the Holy Spirit will speak. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 12, the Lord speaks to Moses and tells him, Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Moses is 80 years old when he's afraid of what am I going to tell them. Opposite end of the spectrum, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 7. But the Lord said to me, do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. You see, the promises of God here go for the teenager who's afraid of what to say, to the 80-year-old person that's afraid what to say. Jesus promises that God the Father and the Holy Spirit will teach us and enable us to share the word in due season. William Barclay, he says, It is the promise of God that when a man is on trial for his faith, the words will come to him. And if you've ever taken the step of faith, you've been there, you've done that. You start sharing the gospel, you start sharing the truth with someone, and you start having two conversations in your mind. You're having a conversation with the person, and then you're thinking in your brain, When did I memorize this verse? When did I watch that YouTube video on how to defend your faith? You start thinking, man, I should start, re I should start recording this. This is some good stuff because you don't know where it's coming from. But it's the Holy Spirit filling you to answer in due season. Now, what Matthew 10, 20 is not saying is that when you're given the chance or when you're asked to teach at a church or teach in kids' ministry or share a devotional, you say, the Holy Spirit says, thou shalt wing it. That's not what it's saying whatsoever. This is when you get arrested and you're brought up in trial, which you don't know when that's going to happen. But the Lord, he has special grace. Verse 21, now brother will de deliver up brother to death and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Sadly, at times, the greatest persecution we receive are from the people that we love the most. Jesus is here warning that persecution would come from our own homes and sometimes would end in martyrdom. There's a blessing within the body of Christ, and I encourage you to get to know one another. Not just the person you came with or the person you were looking for within the church, but get to know the larger family of Christ. Grab a pulled pork sandwich afterwards and sit down with someone new because there are many people within our own church who have been outcasts from their families because their families are hardcore Catholics or their families are Jehovah's Witnesses. And now because they proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, they've been ostracized from their own family. Do you know that? 
You may have all of your family all well and good, but there are many here that have been ostracized because they love Jesus Christ and stand by his word. Many of us will go through persecution socially. Maybe you're made fun of because you don't drink with all your coworkers or you don't go to the strip club with them. You don't go to happy hour with them. You don't laugh at the jokes or look at the pictures or watch the porn with everyone else at the office or at school. Perhaps your persecution is financially. Because you told your boss you're not going to change that date or change that number, you're fired or you're put on leave, your paycheck's on hold. But very few of us are going to have to go through the difficulty of actual death because of our love for Jesus Christ. But the reality is that we have brothers and sisters all over this world, millions of brothers and sisters that have been murdered only because they proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and stand by his word. What are we fearful of? We have brothers and sisters that have given their lives. Each of the disciples, besides Judas, all of the disciples were put to death for their relationship with Jesus Christ. John, he's the only one that dies of old age. That's only because he survived trying to be boiled alive. And he survived being ostracized on an island all alone while he was an old man. But every disciple had to go through martyrdom. Verse 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. 1 John 3.13 tells us, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. And sadly, many believers, especially in America, we marvel when the world hates us. We expect, man, if the world just sees how nice I am, they're going to love me. If the world just knows how much I love them, of course they're going to love me. God's word says the opposite. 2 Timothy 3.12, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And the reason for this is found in James chapter 4 verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is why the world hates us, family. They are at war with God. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1. I encourage you, read Romans 1 when you go home. The state of America will make a lot more sense after reading Romans chapter 1. But in Romans chapter 1, Romans 1 verse 27 It reads, likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness. Sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, and here's the key, haters of God. If we're sons and daughters of God, we will be hated by this world. We have to accept it. We have to stop lying to ourselves thinking that our, our niceness, our mercifulness, our goodness, our love is going to get them to love us or like us. What we have to be careful and make sure is that people's hatred for us is because they are haters of God. That people's hatred for you is because of your love and obedience to Jesus Christ and to his word. Because your life demonstrates those characteristics we've seen on the Sermon on the Mount being poor in spirit and meek and mourning over your sin. 
People should not hate you because you are obnoxious. People should not hate you because you're a jerk and you're mean. People should not hate you because you're lazy at work or because you're a hypocrite or because you're a Pharisee. If that's the case, you're just getting what you deserve. However, if that's what you're going through, repent. Get right with the Lord. Uh, repent to the people that you've hurt and sinned against and get right with the Lord. We will, all people that try to live godly, as Timothy told us, will suffer persecution. So we should be ready for this persecution. And the second half, Jesus tells us that we need endurance. There is a need for endurance. If you've ever watched any of the videos on these crazy endurance marathons and races, 128 miles in 24 hours, you got to be a little bit crazy to sign up for something like this. Yeah, I'm going to pay money to get tortured for 24 hours. That's what I want to do. And if you're a Christian here, guess what? You're signed up for the longest endurance race that exists. Because our race is our whole life. Our whole life. And that's why we need endurance. We can go to Hebrews chapter 10. And Hebrews chapter 10 tells us the characteristics of kingdom-bound people. Kingdom-bound sons and daughters. How should we act? How should we behave? What should our fortitude look like? Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23 tells us, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. But exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You see, church is so important because we are in this long race. We are in this endurance race. And if you've ever watched one of those marathons, church is that little table where everybody's sitting with the cups and the drinks. And you're on this race and you're exhausted and you're tired and you need to stop in and get refreshed. You need to stop in and be loved. You need to stop in and be exhorted and encouraged. That's why we need to stop into church. Verse 35, he says, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. If we have a true faith in Jesus Christ, a true faith is going to give us endurance to get through the difficult seasons of life. And if someone is undergoing persecution, they have a greater need of endurance because it's exhausting. It's exhausting. David Guzik says, A commitment to endure to the end is required for those who will weather the storms of persecution. We who face little real persecution have little understanding of just how difficult it is to endure it. Imagine being hated simply because you love Jesus Christ, not because you're cheating or stealing. And we've witnessed that. People within our own church that their family members say, we used to like you when you were a drunkard. What's up with this Jesus stuff? We used to like you when you'd gamble all your money at Mikasuki. Now you go to church on Sunday. What's up with that? We've been there. We've seen this. We need this endurance to get through these difficulties. All throughout Scripture, we're going to see the commands, do not fear, be strong, you need endurance, and cowardice is not becoming. You never see someone being a coward saying, ah, 
I want to be like that when I grow up someday. You don't see any of the little kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a quitter when I grow up. You don't see that. And yet many believers or so-called believers are acting as cowards. We need to strengthen ourselves in the Lord and be about our Father's business. Charles Spurgeon says, Most men have at least one religious spasm in their lives. I pray that we who are here this Sunday, we're not following a religious spasm, but we have a legitimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And maybe it starts off as a religious spasm. Cry out and repent before Jesus Christ. There are many, maybe it's a loved one who passes away. Their marriage is in turmoil. Their business is about to shut down. And now they just have a religious spasm where they begin attending church for a little season. We know that we need endurance. The trees that make it outside, they have endurance. They've endured. If your kids have gone home with those little science projects, these little seeds that germinate, right? The only way they're going to be a full-grown tree is if they endure. If your kid leaves them in their book bag and they die, they didn't have the endurance. But if now that plant, that seed is taken outside and it grows and bears much fruit, it has that endurance. And that's what we need in our lives, the seed of God's Word, to find good soil and endure and grow and bear much fruit. Verse 23, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This goes back to our mindset in Matthew 10, 16, that we are to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. It's one of my pet peeves in a good action movie when all of a sudden the hero at the end just gives up and just accepts death. I don't like that. Because here Jesus is telling us when you're receiving persecution, don't just sit there and take it, but instead flee to the next city. This also reveals that we shouldn't just go out and seek out persecution. We need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to know when we should be going door to door preaching the gospel when we should just be praying, when we should be praying out loud, when we should just be praying inside and mentally, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. When persecution arises in one city, go to the next. And now at the end of verse 23, many scholars say this is the most difficult verse in Matthew to understand. Either Jesus is saying actually for these disciples that he's going to arrive at these cities before They've gone through all the cities of Israel. But rather, what many scholars believe is that Jesus is here speaking of his judgment in Israel in 70 AD by the hands of Titus Vespasian. David Guzik says it's better to see his coming in this passage as his coming judgment in Judea in AD 70. This would go along with Matthew 10, 15, where he says the judgment poured out on these cities would be worse than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. D.A. Carson, he says, when they face persecution, they must take it as no more than a signal for strategic withdrawal to the next city where witness must continue because the time is short. They will not have finished evangelizing the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes in judgment on Israel. If I could be honest, this applies, I think, to many of us as believers. We're just pouring all of our influence into maybe our own kids or our own spouse or a loved one, and they just don't want to hear it. Yet all of our focus is on them, is on them, is on them, on them, and it's falling on deaf ears. Many times the wiser thing to do is maybe start serving in kids' ministry or start serving with the youth, start serving with the young adults, and now pour out that message of the good news there where there's good soil and there's many hearts that want to receive it. And then later on in God's timing, he'll bring back that child or that loved one to hear the good news and accept it. Verse 24 and 25, it tells us, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, 
and a servant like his master, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. We have this expectation, like we mentioned earlier, that if we're nice enough, if we're kind enough, if we're loving enough, if we water down the message enough, even the world will like us. But that's just not the case. Do, do we actually think we're better than Jesus? Do we think that we're kinder than Jesus? That we're more loving than Jesus? Again, Jesus healed the multitudes. Jesus fed the multitudes. And they hated him. They called him Beelzebub. They called him Satan or a Satan worshiper. That's where he got his power from. Then how in the world do we expect the world to like us with our frailties? If Jesus was perfect and did good for all mankind and they hated him, what should we expect? Instead of our goal being to be liked by the world, our goal needs to be to look more and more like Jesus every day. This is what our goal needs to be, and it may result in being slandered and persecuted. Imagine Jesus having to withstand people calling him a Satan worshiper. Right? Sometimes you just laugh about it. What's the craziest thing someone's told you, right? Have you joined the cult? What's going on with you, right? What's going on with you? Charles Spurgeon says, God was slandered in paradise and Christ on Calvary. How can we hope to escape it? They're going to talk. Let them talk. Follow your master. Follow your master. Romans 8.29, it tells us, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is the promise for us, that if we truly are saved, we've been predestined to look more and more like Jesus each passing day. Do you look more like Jesus today than a week ago, or than a month ago, or than a year ago. I always laugh. I tell my wife, whenever a new baby is born, I think everybody thinks the game is, who does the baby look more like? And they need to tell you who they think the baby looks like. Just, just, it just happens. That familial look-alike, oh, he looks just like his dad. Oh, he looks just like his mom. That's what they should say of us with Jesus Christ. Because if we're saved, we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And 1 Peter 3, Peter here has a few things to tell us when it comes to suffering for righteousness' sake. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. First Peter 3.13, it tells us, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If you're suffering because of righteousness' sake, you're blessed. That's what Peter tells us. And now our focus is not to be on their threats or the mean things that they're saying. Our focus needs to be on, Lord, help me be sanctified through this process. Help me to not come down to their level and now start making fun of them. How are you going to share the gospel to someone you just made fun of and mocked, right? It doesn't work that well. The message, it gets weak that way. Instead, we need to do it in meekness and fear. And look at the balance here. Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit's going to give you the word. But Peter here says that we need to be ready 
to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We jump back to Matthew 10. Then he tells us in verse 26, as he said it so often here, therefore do not fear them. We just read in Peter, do not be afraid. Do not be troubled. Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Even if they mock you, even if they defame you or call you a Satan worshiper. Again, what's the craziest thing you've been called? During COVID, they said all sorts of crazy things about us. Do you hate old people? Is that why you're opening church? Because you hate the elderly? We, We are told all sorts of different things. Do not fear them. And you just need to trust that the Lord is going to reveal the truth in his due time. Proverbs 28 verse 1 tells us, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. We need to be bold. We need to have boldness. And if you're being treated unfairly at work, if that professor gives you an F on that paper because of your stance on the truth and your stance on the Bible and the stance for Jesus Christ, just accept it. The Lord's going to bring that truth out in due season. If at work you're being treated unfairly because you're not willing to sleep around with your boss, you're not willing to play the game of going to the Friday afternoon drunk fest at the bar, trust in the Lord. And parents, I hope that you're not trying to dumb down your children when they're trying to be bold in high school or middle school or in college. We need to be bold as lions. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 tells us, Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring both to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. The Lord, he brings everything out into the light. And family, friend, if you're hiding something right now, no matter how much you try to erase that history, no matter how deep you dug it, no matter how far back in the closet you put it, in due time, the Lord will bring it out. Better for you to bring it out asking for repentance than the Lord to bring it out in that time. Then in verse 27, it says, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And now one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. He starts off saying, hey, whatever I tell you in the dark, whatever you hear in your ear, speak in the light and preach on the housetops. Those things that God reveals to you in your quiet time, those things that God reveals to you in your private reading, in your time of prayer, in your time alone with the Lord, we are to speak it and preach it for all to hear. Then in verse 28, it's almost comical. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body. Wait, what? Do not be afraid that they might kill you. Jesus, I don't think you're understanding here, right? Death is one of the most innate fears that all of us have. No one is looking to die. That's not what we're about. We're trying to run from that as much as possible. And yet Jesus says in Luke's account of this, Luke 12 verse 4, I say to you, my friends, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do to you. There is a special unity that we have with Christ when we're martyred because of how much we love him and we're obedient to the Father. Because he was put to death because of his obedience to the Father. But the question here is, who are we more afraid of? Man or of God? What is your greatest fear? Who do you respect most? And if truly we are kingdom bound sons and daughters, then where is our true home address? It's in heaven. This world is not our home, and yet many believers act and live as if this world is our only home. 
This world is our only hope. And we get so wrapped up with the comforts of the world and the things of this world that we're not living for eternity. We're not putting any treasures in heaven. I always think of Pastor Tony Falzion from Calvary Chapel Finger Lakes. And oftentimes he'll tell people, what are you going to do? Threaten me with heaven? And this is how we should look at death. What is the worst that can happen to us? No more pain? No more crying? No more sin? No more war? We're face to face with Jesus Christ. We're with all our loved ones that accepted him and lived for him. What are you threatening me with here? This is the way we need to see death itself. It is just the doorway into resurrection life like we sing sometimes. Death is the great river that we have to go through to get to the celestial city. This is how we need to see death. And there's no doubt that this was the mindset of Paul. In Acts 14 verse 19, it tells us that the Jews, they gathered together from Antioch and Iconium and they're coming after Paul. And they persuaded the multitudes so that they stoned Paul and dragged them out of the city supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. Paul, are you crazy? You literally just got stoned to death or to the verge of death, and now you're getting up. You're not being obedient to Jesus. He said, if you're persecuted, go to the next city, right? Paul, you're getting up, and you're going back to the same city. Here we see a man that was not afraid of death. He knew that Jesus wrote the day he was going to be born, and the day he was going to die, and his mission was to be obedient to his master. Family, do you struggle with the fear of man? Are you always afraid of, always thinking, what will people say? What do they think about me? What are they talking about me? What are they saying? What are they doing? Then what you need to do is to cultivate the fear of God. Because the fear of God is the greatest antidote to the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 tells us the fear of man brings a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Living a life that's always afraid of what are my parents going to think? What are my kids going to think? What is this person going to think? What is my coworker? What are my classmates going to think? It chokes your life out. But if your trust is in the Lord, you're going to be safe. All over scripture, it tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence and his children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. And finally, do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. Who are you more fearful of? Who are you trying to please? People or the Lord? Jesus tells us instead of we should, number one, not be afraid of those who could kill us, but instead be afraid of the one who's able to destroy both our soul and body in hell. There is a lie going around today that what hell means is that you just are disintegrated. You just cease to exist, and that's what hell is. But the word destroy here is the state of utter ruin. The loss of well-being. A person ruined so that they can no longer serve the use for which he or she was designed for. To no longer be usable for its intended purpose. And when we don't accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we don't live for him, then we spend the rest of eternity ruined for our sake of existing. Which is fellowship and relationship and communion with God. There is no ceasing to exist for the unbeliever. There is everlasting life for the Christian and the believer and the disciple of Jesus Christ. And then there is everlasting death for the unbeliever and for the prideful person and for the one that only fears man. 
You become no longer usable for that intended purpose of communion and fellowship and worship of God. And now sadly there's a sentence to eternal damnation where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But it doesn't have to be this way. The Lord, he wills that none would perish. God's heart is that no one would go here. God's heart is that all would repent and come to him. And if that's you here this morning, this afternoon, repent and come to him. Verse 29 through 31, he speaks of sparrows. That a sparrow's worth half a penny. And now one sparrow falls apart from God's will. That he knows the number of hairs on her head. Therefore, do not fear. You're more value than many sparrows. God attends the funeral of every sparrow. That's one way to look at this. I don't know if you've been there as a parent. Your kid's little goldfish dies and they say, we're going to have a funeral. And you're thinking, well, we're going to do what? We're going to just flush that thing and go on to the next, right? We're just going to buy that thing and replace it. No, the heart of the father is that he attends the funeral of every sparrow. How much more does he care about us? You see, that's one of the lies that the enemy tells us when we're going through difficulty and when we're going through persecution. Has God forgotten about you? Has God not care about you anymore? No, he cares about us to the point that he knows all of our losses and all of our additions. He knows every hair that comes and he knows every hair that goes. For some of us, that's easier than others, right? He's aware of exactly where we are at. Do not fear the Father. He sees you and he knows you. Do not fear. John Trapp, he says, this is the third time in six verses that they and we are bid to banish this cowardly passion, this causeless, fruitless, harmful, sinful fear of men. He that fears God need fear none else. Family, fear is the opposite of faith. And I encourage you, as you're reading through your Bible, pay attention to just how often those words, do not fear, do not be afraid, fear not, be strong, be courageous, be strong in the power of his might. Pay attention to how often those words leap off the page. Because the Father knows what we're prone to, and we are prone to being fearful. Verse 32 through 33 he says, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This goes back to verse 28. The fear of the Lord keeps us from this great snare. But if we allow the fear of man to dominate our lives to the point that we're denying him before men... Then he warns us. He will deny us as well when we arrive to eternity in front of the Father. And here what this shows us is that there's no such thing as an undercover Christian. There's no such thing as an undercover Christian. At least not in the long run. Even Nicodemus had to come out of his hiding. And when Jesus died, he went out to take care of the dead body of Jesus Christ. And as Joe Foge always says, if Nicodemus was willing to do this for a dead Jesus, what should we be willing to do for our Savior who's alive and seated at the right hand of the throne of God? What should we be willing to do? How bold ought we to be knowing that our Redeemer lives and that he's in heaven ruling and reigning? Are you lying to yourself being that undercover Christian? How long has this been your state? I exhort you to come out of your hiding and be bold in your faith. Because if all you have is fear and fear of man and fear of what people will think, then perhaps there's no faith in Jesus Christ to begin with. If your whole life is dominated by what are people going to say, then you got to be careful and you got to be bold. Be bold as a lion. Jesus was bold. Jesus was not afraid of death, not even the death of the cross, but he endured. David Guzik says, the words secret Christian is a contradiction in terms. It is an oxymoron. 
Charles Spurgeon says, What Christ is to you on earth, that you will be to Christ in heaven. I shall repeat that truth. Whatever Jesus Christ is to you on earth, you will be to him in the day of judgment. If he be dear and precious to you, then you will be dear and precious to him. If you thought everything of him, then he will think everything of you. One commentator says this, We dare not miss that Jesus here claimed that one's eternal destiny depends upon their response to him. Our eternal destiny depends on our response to Jesus Christ. Are we proud that we're attached to him? Right? If you're dating here and your boyfriend doesn't want to say that you are together in public, warning flags should be going up, right? If you're married and every time you go out, your husband or wife hides that wedding ring somewhere else, warning signs should be going up. And if every time we go out, we're trying to hide the fact that we belong to Jesus Christ, warning flags should be going up. Verse 34, do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That happens anyways. Verse 36. <laughs> and the man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus knew that the gospel would bring a great separation in our lives. And sadly, that separation can even come from our own family. In Eastern culture, it's centered on the family. It's centered on the patriarch or the matriarch of that family. And if you come from a Hispanic household, you, you know it. You cannot fathom having a holiday without being together with your family. Eastern culture in the Middle East is even more family-oriented. So the idea of being separated from your family and being made their enemy seemed insane. And to think of the meek, the poor in spirit, the peacemaker, the merciful that would lead to such division in the household, it is because of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. The exclusivity that the Word of God is the actual breathed-out Word of God. And what His Word says has power and is truth. And this is where people get angry because His Word pokes at the idols and the gods of others. We need to cling to the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and His Word even if it gets others angry. Even people within our own household. Uh, reading this book entitled Gentle and Lowly, there's one whole chapter on the exclusivity of the love of Jesus Christ and how his love needs to be number one for us. And I don't know if it was John Wesley, but one of these old-time preachers, he took a break from teaching on a Sunday morning from the general congregation. He went and he taught children's ministry, and his message was on Matthew chapter 10, Verse 37, he literally taught the kids, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Parents, how do we deal with this? Do we truly love Jesus Christ more than our own family? And it's difficult for us, especially a Hispanic household. We are taught from birth, got to respect your elders, got to love your mom, got to love your dad, which we need to do. But there comes a time when situations will arise that we have to choose who is chief? Is it Jesus Christ or is it my parents? A few months ago, we had Pastor Eric Souza from Reach Jacksonville, the Calvary Chapel in Jacksonville, and he taught on church-approved idols. They're still idols, they're still sinful, but they go under the church without most people calling attention to it, and it is this idolatry to our children. And it creeps within the church. Christians screaming at teachers, what did you do to my son or daughter? They are perfect. What are you talking about, right? 
Do we love our children more than Jesus Christ? If so, his words are plain and simple. We are not worthy of him. And I love my kids. I'm going through the season. It's pretty crazy. Nine years ago was when my oldest took his first steps. I'm in this crazy season of life where it's like I truly am getting old here. And I love my kids. But I would not have my kids if it were not for Jesus Christ and what he did in my life. And now he changed my life. He needs to be chief in my life and he needs to be chief in the lives of my kids. Verse 38 and 39, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. This would have been appalling to the disciples. This is the first time the cross is mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew. It would be preaching a message and then all of a sudden saying, he who does not sit in the electric chair is not worthy of me. He who does not take a noose as a necklace is not worthy of me. He who does not inject himself with a lethal injection is not worthy of me. It was not customary or okay to talk about the cross. It was not dinner table talk discussion because it had to deal with death, a gruesome death, and it reminded the Jews that the Roman government was their overlord. And yet Jesus uses a tool of death and destruction, and he says, unless you pick up your cross and follow after me, you are not worthy of me. Our Christian walk is all about self-sacrifice, self-denial, and destruction of self. That's what it's all about. We need to deny ourselves because he who loses their life will find it. True life, true happiness, true joy is found in losing our lives for the sake of Jesus Christ and being focused on him. Is it not the case that oftentimes the people that are the most self-centered, the most narcissistic, tend to be the most miserable people around us? We need to lose our lives and cling to Jesus Christ. He says if we want to resurrect, we need to be with him. And how many of us want the resurrected life? I want the resurrected life today. How many of us want the resurrected life for eternity? I want to resurrect in eternity. But do you know what's a precursor for resurrection? Death. That's the part we don't like so much, right? Jesus, how do we skip that death part to just resurrecting again and again? We, we need to die. We need to be willing to crucify our flesh daily and follow him. Finally, verse 40 through 42, it says, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. I love it. He starts off by receiving me. He receives, he receives the one who sent me to receiving a prophet, to receiving a righteous man, to receiving one of these little ones. And here what Jesus is saying is any act of kindness towards his people and towards his servants, he will remember and he will reward. Whether it's a large and grand scale type of blessing or whether it's just a simple cup of water. This past weekend, there's a few men and women that volunteered and were working on the playground, so grateful for them. But if you were just out there just giving them little cups of water, the Lord sees that, and he's going to reward that on the other side of eternity. He sees all of our actions, from the biggest ones to the tiny cups of water. So family, what are you most fearful of? Are you most fearful of your coworkers or your family, your friends? Or are you fearful of, do you have that respect and that reverence for our Father in heaven? The only way we're going to be those good laborers, those good workers, is if we keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is worshiping him, following him, and respecting him. So if the worship team can come up, and we'll close in song. Hey, let's all stand. We'll pray, and we'll close in song. Lord, we thank you for your word and Lord, help us, God. Each of us, we go through different levels of fear. 
So, Lord, for the person here who, Lord, struggles with fear, Lord, the person here who has a very timid personality, Lord, Lord, I pray that you just be strengthening them and be speaking to them. Lord, thank you that throughout your word you use so many men and women who are fearful. Lord, how you constantly are telling the disciples, O ye of little faith, Lord, thank you that you want to take us in our weakness and strengthen us and make us bold as lions, Lord. Not because of our strength, but because of your strength despite our weaknesses. So, Lord, please be with us. And, God, may we cry out to you. Lord, if there's anyone here that does, that does not know that they know that they know you, Lord. If there's anyone here that's been living that double-agent Christianity for years, Lord, I pray they'd come up front, repent, and go out in the boldness and in the truth of the gospel, Lord. That they would have so much love for you, they could not help but tell the people around them that they belong to you. That you are our Father, you are our Lord, our Savior, and our King. So Jesus, we love you. We ask for strength for the week ahead, Lord. And we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.